I am joined by Josh Young, founder and chief investment officer of Bison Interest. Josh, welcome to Forward Guidance. Can you just tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure, absolutely. Happy to. So um, I'm the portfolio manager for Bison Interests. Um, bison are the only four-legged animals that when there's a storm, they face into the storm and they get through it safer and faster. Uh, the other animals turn and run from the storm. And so uh, we invest in publicly traded oil and gas companies. Uh, we launched the fund in 2015 after the crash in oil in 2014. And the thought was that uh, there were a number of companies that were undervalued and uh, very attractively uh, positioned. And that unfortunately continued to uh, be even more the case for the next number of years. Uh, and here we are now finally in an oil bull market having faced through the storm for many years. Yeah, we definitely are, are in an oil uh, bull market. It's quite a journey from April of 2020 when oil was negative $38. Now we're at something like $115 on WTI. What's that? What's that journey been like? Where you're going from? You're literally switching from negative to positive, and then you have you know highs that we haven't seen in in close to ten years, right? Yeah, I mean, to some extent, it's vindicating in terms of this is something that we saw years ago and expected, and then we're told many times that we were wrong about. And then um, first, it was there was this oil and gas uh, private equity bubble going on when we launched in 2015, and there was tons of money going into that and energy credit, tons of money going into that. And then people just decided, oh, well, oil and gas in general are bad and almost all of our competitors closed. Um, so, you know, it's pretty pretty interesting. I, I, I like to talk about how it's similar to Forrest Gump where, you know, maybe it wasn't the brightest idea in 2015 to go launch a uh, oil and gas investment firm. Uh, you know, it wasn't the best timing and our, our forward crystal ball was broken, um, but we stuck through it. And by sticking through it, we were able to benefit from a period where, you know, there's almost no, using that analogy, there's almost no shrimping boats. There's there's not a lot out there in terms of competition. And now people are starting to come back into the space, but it's been really, uh, really rich waters to, to go in and, and find really promising, uh, promising catch. And do you find that the capital that has gone into the space, do you think that is sufficient to meet current and projected oil demand? Because on the one hand, you see all these stocks are going up, uh, and we can talk about that, but they're not really, companies aren't really using that funds to to build wells, to, to drill holes, right? So how do you see that playing out? Yeah. So a lot of the money that we've seen come back into the space has been through uh, large hedge funds that aren't really telling their clients what they're doing. So um, you know, think of like the biggest ones or the ones that have been in the news a lot, not for closing down, but for doing well and whatever. Um, so those guys, they'll, they'll typically be structured with a bunch of different pods where they allocate like a billion dollars or half a billion dollars per pod and they lever up five or 10 times. So a lot of those are doing relative value trades. And so there's a significant amount of, uh, capital that's come in through that. And then there's some value capital that's come in for uh, through, let's say, Berkshire Hathaway buying stock, which was in the news. Um, but none of that capital really is coming in to fund additional drilling of wells. If anything, a lot of it is chasing companies that have already announced and started paying very large dividends. And so um, it's kind of coming into the sector, but expecting to get significant cash back really fast 
rather than coming in to fund development. So um, no, I think uh, the private equity has been you know pretty pretty hit pretty hard in general, but particularly in oil and gas. And so it doesn't seem like there's substantial new allocations or new institutional money coming in. And there's still net money leaving through private equity through old funds and old positions uh, selling. Now that prices are higher, they're able to actually sell some of their assets and then they're returning capital to allocators who are not turning around and putting it back in the industry. And in what way is that, I think the phrase is shareholder discipline or capital discipline, is that different from the previous bull market from 2009 to 2014 that collapsed pretty spectacularly because companies were deploying money into production and and then you had a bust. What are you seeing now that's very different from that? And, and, how, and what role does that play in your thesis? That's, that's a great question. I actually would say that the oil bull market started in 2001. It didn't start in uh, 2009. And that's important because what we saw with that bull market was the um, ramp up of oil and gas private equity. And so we saw firms that were running, let's say, $50 million or raising $50 million funds go to running $5 billion funds, deploying that into private, uh, private companies and really rapidly growing development, delineating new resource. And and that was necessary for the world. And there would have been material uh, undersupply of oil and natural gas had they not gone and done that. And so they filled a need. And there was this kind of private credit bubble and private equity bubble that went from uh, there being amazing opportunities, and it was very rare, to the point where now when I go to conferences, just oil and gas industry conferences, I have to explain to people what it means to professionally invest in publicly traded oil and gas companies. They're just so used to private equity because there was just this, you know, if it was like public equity was big and private equity was little, um, when that sort of bull market started in 2001, private equity was almost unknown. At this point, public equity investments as a sort of sector specialist, which is what these private equity funds are too, um, public equity oil and gas is basically almost unknown. And the private firms are kind of, that's like the whole market and everyone kind of knows them and understands them. So um, so I think that's kind of the biggest difference is there's there were huge inflows, some of which were through the public markets, but a lot of it was private capital. And that private capital, uh, you know, the inflows were necessary to ramp up the industry, especially here in the U.S., as much as it has uh, ramped up. And it's just not there. And then on the public side as well, um, there were a lot of equity issuances from 2001 to 2014. And frankly, even through, I'd say that bubble really ended, the funding bubble really ended kind of in 2018. And so when you look at the, the funding, I mean, there was a huge amount of money raised and deployed and lost mostly from 2014 after the crash to 2018. And, you know, to our credit, we managed to survive through that and, you know, um, not destroy capital. Um and you know there was this sort of big, almost twenty-year investment bubble, and so here we are on the backside of it. And uh, the world is very different. There's a, there's much less capital available, and it gets awarded with a much higher return because of that scarcity. And so, what if companies aren't using the money to uh, drill holes in the ground? What are what are they doing with that money, and and why is that significant? Well, I mean, the the money that companies have available now is not from 
it's not direct investment. There's almost no direct investment coming into the companies or going into assets. Again, there's like net divestment still, both on the public and private side. I guess on the public side where there is money coming in, it's typically long short money or it's you know big funds coming into big companies that again, aren't really raising equity. So the money that these companies have is from their cash flow from their assets that were delineated, explored, delineated and developed using private capital in the last cycle. So um, that's so important, like you're asking, because it means that we're really undercapitalized right now to be able to adequately supply current production needs as well as likely near-term production needs. And we're not at all doing what we need to do as an industry, which is to explore more new resource and then delineate it and get it ready for development as oil demand continues to grow about 1% annually around the world. Now let's get into the specifics of your, your your investments in oil and gas at, at Bison Interest. So you know a lot of people say, okay, uh, he invests in oil oil and natural gas. Like they they may associate with that. Let's say an ETF, something like XLE. The biggest holding is Exxon Mobil. The next biggest holding is Chevron. Uh, you know that has done phenomenally well year to date. I believe it's you know one of the few, if not the only, S and P 500 sector ETFs that is positive for the year, significantly so. But you don't invest in those type of companies. Tell us um, what what type of companies that you prefer and why you invest in those over the the super majors that a lot of people are familiar with. Yeah. So um, I think I'm doing what's similar to what the private equity funds did in 2001 where they found sort of unique off-the-run assets and off-the-run opportunities that were undercapitalized, structurally undercapitalized because of the nature of the industry and the nature of the capital markets. And um, I diligence them significantly, similar to private equity, get to know the people, I get to know the assets, I understand the capital structure. And then I guess the big difference is, in some cases, I'm actually participating in offerings to get positions. So I'm helping smaller companies sort of fund their development. And in other cases, I'm buying stock from exiting shareholders, both of which are similar to how private equity gets exposure. And again, it's not, I think, similar at all to what- Sorry, Josh, what, what, is, the fir- what is the first thing you said? What's that? You're doing a primary offering? You're- yeah. So sometimes I'll participate if a company is raising money to go uh, ramp up a development of an asset or to fund an acquisition or something along those lines. I'll participate. And again, that's a very rare thing, but it's happening more often right now than it has for a number of years. And again, in many cases, that's not actually capital net going into the industry because in many times or in many cases, that money is just going to a seller who is then returning the capital to investors that had put money in many years ago. So it's kind of recycling capital out, not necessarily net adding substantial new capital into the industry to use for development. So um, I'll participate in both primary offerings as well as buying stock in a secondary market. And um so I think what, what I'm doing is pretty similar and what we're doing at Bison is pretty similar to what people did in the private fund space 20 years ago with private assets. And if you look at those returns that those funds generated, I mean, they were good enough that those private fund managers, private equity fund managers were able to go from 25 or $50 million funds to $5 billion vintage funds where they'd go raise two or five or something billion every time. And I think what I'm trying to do that's a little different than that is not ever get necessarily to $5 billion funds and to just stay focused on where the best opportunities are, kind of regardless of size, and 
um, to invest entirely as if it's my own money, which a lot of it is. And um, so I think I think that so we're, we're looking for good companies. Um, so the assets have to be high quality and able to generate substantial cash flow at current commodity prices. And then management teams that typically have either done what they're attempting to do before at prior entities or have had a lot of success in their current entity accomplishing what they're saying they're trying to accomplish. And then balance sheets that are survivable. So not necessarily zero debt or whatever, but just uh, set up in a way where along with the management and the assets, they're a fit and they offer sort of uh, all three of those together in a package that's heavily discounted, often at a discount to the uh, going rate for liquidation if they just went and sold all those assets today. So I think I read that uh, your firm uh, netted something like 390% in the, the year of 2021. And you know, if you look at some of the stocks that perhaps we'll, we'll talk about, you can see that they, they went from extremely cheap uh, uh, and they, they've sort of skyrocketed higher. Why was it, what, what is it about those sorts of companies? Perhaps let's just take Sandridge as an example that allowed it to just sort of be priced at a certain level and now it's priced so much higher and, and uh, versus a company like, let's say Exxon, which, you know, it's, it's definitely doubled more, more than that um, from the bottom, but it doesn't have as much sort of juice. Like what are the, the, the economics uh, that allow that to be? Well, there's there's a, a aspect of it that should be addressed before the economics, which is the psychology. So Sandridge is a post bankrupt uh, post bankruptcy company, and they chose to not change their name. I guess because they were well known. Maybe it was a mistake. Maybe not. But post bankruptcy sort of reorg equities often trade at large discounts after emergence from bankruptcy because uh, people associate them with the negative activities that happened prior to bankruptcy. And in Sandridge's case, um, when they emerged, they unfortunately retained some of the management that had uh, managed the company prior to bankruptcy, making a number of different mistakes and uh, causing a number of different problems. And so they not only didn't change the name, they also didn't change some of their governance and management methodologies. And so um, there is this sort of negative association and negative psychology associated with it. By the time... um, we got interested and started to accumulate stock. Uh, that had changed. Carl Icahn came in and changed the board and sort of refocused the company. Um, and it wasn't perfect. That was a process, and it took a few iterations in terms of finding the right team and figuring out the right approach. Um, but that's an important thing to not forget. I mean, there are still people uh, that are very loud. I don't know kind of what their capital markets involvement is, but very loud, very negative on it and very odd, right? It's just like when you look at the thing as it is today and you look at the financial performance and the operating performance, uh, it's very dissonant with people's view, even today, even after sort of multiple years of this turnaround that's been very successful. So that's important because um, an old boss uh, many years ago, in my first sort of public equity investing job used to ask me when I'd pitch an investment idea, why am I so lucky, right? Like, why can I get this opportunity for so cheap? And in this case, I was so lucky and maybe still am so lucky um, because there there is this thing that is unrelated, it appears, to the financial or operating or 
even valuation prospect of the business. There's just hatred and sort of dislike. And frankly, it's carried over from that company to me, which is kind of wild. I'm a passive minority investor in the company. So, hey, you know, uh, turns out that can potentially make you uh, bad or evil or whatever. But, um, you know, so I think that's an important starting point, right? And it's like so, so extreme that it carries over to people that own the stock and just like really intense. So, um, yeah, yeah well, if, if I can. So it went bankrupt. Uh, a lot of other companies that were very active in 2012, 2013, 2014 uh, uh, and buying up properties, borrowing money, they also went bankrupt. So that's still in investors' minds. Uh, although, you know, I have the balance sheet in front of me. They Sandwich has more cash on its balance sheet, cash on its balance sheet than all of the liabilities combined by, you know, almost by a factor of two. Whereas there are a lot of oil companies that would have a negative book value if it weren't for their reserves. So, so Sandridge is not relying on its reserves for it to, it to have a positive book value. That's right. Um, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I think people had a maybe extreme negative experience with Sandridge. And again, partly I think it might have been that they retained much of the management team and the board from pre-bankruptcy to post. It might have been the activism uh, after uh, bankruptcy. It might have been that the first management team that the activists brought in after was value destructive. So there was this kind of like trajectory that was negative. And so if you weren't paying that much attention to it and you just sort of looked and you checked up on it after the bankruptcy, hey, is this interesting? No. <laughs> so, you know, at some point you just sort of say, okay, well, this thing is bad. And again, that's not necessarily true. And you kind of want to, in uh, in my experience, I found it's helpful to sort of refresh these things and try to understand what um, what's actually happening and then what the value proposition is. And, you know, if it's people, so actually someone today pitched me on this other stock and it's the same people that have been there for a while and it's restructured twice and the operating results, they always have promising well results, but the actual performance and cash flow never seems to add up. It was easy, right? Like supposedly it's cheap, but it's the same people, it's the same assets, the same balance sheet that's an easy pass, right? But in this case, it's different on almost all of those factors. And so um, I think it's important to be able to uh, separate your cold analysis of the opportunity from emotions, from background, and really to be able to just not, it's not personal, it's money and it's uh, expected value calculation essentially. And so, um, so with Sandridge, and again, like I own the stock, I'm not recommending it, um, but just sharing like you per your request. So um, when we looked at it, uh, and frankly, like I owned the stock at $10 initially or something like that. I started to buy the stock around then. It was cheap. It was cheap on cash flow. It was cheap relative to the borrowing base that was available through the banks that were lending to the company at the time. And it was an interesting bet on potentially higher natural gas prices over time. And so that was pre-COVID. And um, during COVID, the stock crashed. Oh, and there were, I always look for sort of hidden assets. I look for other stuff there that could end up being worth a lot of money in a liquidation. And so unfortunately, uh, the team involved did not liquidate assets at a good time, but it turned out that when oil prices crashed, there was still an opportunity to liquidate some of these non-core assets. And they were able to, I think the market gave them no credit, which was similar to how the market had not given them credit prior to COVID, but um, they were able to sell, they owned an office building, which was basically a liability, and they were able to sell that for tens of millions of dollars. And then they owned an oil field that was highly problematic and had been a place where they had put a lot of money and not gotten a lot of money out, 
And they sold that also, I can't remember the exact price, but it was also for tens of millions of dollars. It's called North Park. And so they're able to liquidate low performing or negative cash flow assets, pay off all of their debt and uh, position themselves to be able to sort of ramp back up after a period of very low oil prices. So that was what I saw at 10, and that made it compelling to go buy a lot more of it at lower prices. And here we are, um, you know, I mean, it went as low as I think 50 cents or 40 cents or something. And, you know, we were able to buy a bunch more kind of in that dollar, $2 range, went public with our investment thesis at $1.70. And, you know, uh, here it is. But again, it was about the, there's the business and the intrinsic value of the business, and there's a lot of operating leverage because they had relatively high break-evens for natural gas. And on the oil side, it was actually okay. It was more that there was this sort of optionality towards recovering natural gas prices, which was something I wanted exposure to and was actually quite hard to find exposure to um, on a cost-effective basis. And so there was that on the sort of right tail, and then the left tail was protected by these non-core assets, which again, it didn't mute the share price volatility. And again, I think this is why private equity is still so popular outside of oil and gas and was popular in oil and gas. The stocks are very volatile, but the private equity funds would just kind of like not mark stuff. They would just return capital as they sold assets, but just kind of keep everything marked at par until there was some sort of event in either direction. So there was a big article recently, I think in the Wall Street Journal about this, about private equity and how the returns, net of fees are actually lower in the overall private equity world. It's just that institutions don't have to mark the volatility so it looks better on a risk adjusted basis, but it's just because they're measuring risk as volatility. So risk wasn't volatility with Sandridge. It wasn't intrinsically risky because it had these non-core assets that it could sell and did sell in a downside case. And here we are with the downside having been preserved, equity value way above where it was, even at our inflated entry point pre-COVID and then way above our sort of average cost. Um, so anyway, that's like kind of how we thought about it. There's a lot of specifics, but kind of high level, it's a heads I win and tails I don't lose too much sort of approach. Thank you. I think I'm going to be paraphrasing Warren Buffett, but I think Warren Buffett said something like, when it comes to oil investing, a lot of what you're really betting on is the price of oil. Uh, you know, I don't think that XLE or uh, oil investors such as you would not have had as good results over the past year and a half if the price of oil hasn't gone, uh, hadn't you know exploded higher. But to what degree do you agree or disagree with with what Mr. Buffett said? So what I try to do is do better. Um, and I have so far um, than how one would do if one blindly just owned a sort of passive investment in an ETF. And, you know, it is interesting because Buffett's bought two companies that are very exposed to the price of oil, but are not necessarily like they're, they're not known for earning above <laughs> oil market returns, if anything, maybe uh, the contrary. Um, and so it is interesting, I guess, like his investments are reflective of that view. Uh, my investments are reflective of a different view, which is I can find companies because they exist. And I think I don't think Buffett really would disagree with me. And if anything, um, you know, I've only been to the Berkshire meeting a couple of times, but the first time I went, he talked about how much better he would do if he was managing $50 million, which conveniently is around kind of where I'm running right now um, and where we did really well last year, like you were saying. Um, so when you look at uh, what he said and then you look at what he did when Buffett was managing $50 million, 
Um, he did lots of sort of special situation investing like Bison does. He did a lot of this sort of thing where he was finding companies uh, where he was paying 30 cents on the dollar in some case versus like publicly traded assets that the companies held. Um, and so I think I think 40 uh, year old Warren Buffett running 50 or in today's dollars, $200 million would be doing if he, to the extent he was investing in oil and gas, which he probably would be given what he's doing now with Berkshire, um, would be doing, I think, many things similar to what uh, Bison is doing and probably getting similar sort of feedback. I mean, you look at the sort of businesses that he invested in at age 40, at age 35, and you look at the reputations those businesses had. I mean, frankly, in many cases, they had worse reputations than Sandridge does. So, um, you know, I think uh, I think being a value investor means owning things that are intrinsically unpopular, taking views that are based on data uh, and analysis, not based on uh, popularity or, you know, what's going to go over well at a cocktail party or whatever. For sure. I think you use the word uh, break even price. Uh, expl explain what that is and why that's uh, why that gives up different payoffs depending where, where sort of the, the price of oil is. And then we can get into sort of, you know, what depending on what the price of oil is, like what would the different different payoffs be? But uh, yeah, like what what would the break-even price be for, let's say, a company ExxonMobil or a company like ExxonMobil? And then why might you be attracted to a company that would have a perhaps slightly higher break-even cost? Yeah, I think Exxon is really hard to tell what their actual break-even is because they have refining operations and chemicals and midstream and other stuff. They're an integrated producer. Um, but sure, let's use them just because uh, simple enough and you mentioned them. So uh, let's say that Exxon's uh, break-even on their production is about $25 a barrel. So below $25 a barrel, they're losing money from an operating cash flow perspective, just net of their direct costs to the production. And so let's take Sandridge, where below $40 a barrel, assuming proportionately lower natural gas prices too, below $40 a barrel, Sandridge might not make money on an operating uh, basis. So what that means is, and it's actually it's funny, I was talking to an investment banker about this the other day and couldn't understand it. It was a, for a Canadian company, but pretty similar. And it's a very powerful concept. So if oil is at 40, a company with a $40 break even, uh, which is just, you know, they're paying, that's the cost for their electricity and their pumps and the gathering of the oil and the processing it and then uh, getting it to a point where they're able to sell it. That That's what they mean by op operating costs. So Exxon might be earning a $15 profit per barrel profit. And again, uh, acknowledging they have refining and other stuff, but just excluding that for this, uh, for this purpose. So Exxon might be earning $15 a barrel for their production and Sandridge might be earning $0 a barrel for their production net of operating costs. So you look at it at $40 oil and you say, man, this Sandridge field is worthless and this Exxon field is worth a fortune because they're making money at these low oil prices. Well, Maybe, but if you look at the long-term price for oil and the long-term trajectory for the oil price and how it's performed versus inflation over time, you can come up with, and there's various other sort of com complicated supply-demand models and other views, but if you take just sort of a basic view, I mean, it's kind of similar to looking at an apartment building, right? If you take an apartment building in LA, where I'm from originally, I'm in Houston now, but from LA, valuations for apartments are very high. And they're high because rents are very high. But if you come in and say, hey, instead of it being $4,000 a month for this very high cost to operate apartment in an apartment complex, if it's $1,000 a month that you're going to get in rent, 
Of course, like these apartment buildings that are worth $100 million are going to be worth zero or not zero, but like something very low. So what you want to do isn't to say, oh, is rent going to be a thousand or a thousand one hundred dollars? You want to say, okay, like what's the trajectory for rent? Is it going to go down? Is it going to go up? And then, excuse me, if uh, if it's going to go up over time, but the rent is really low right now for some temporary reason and there's no rent control, then maybe it's a great time to go buy when the rent price is close to the price that it costs to operate that building. So same for oil and gas. If you have a view, and again, I think uh, oil price views and commodity price views are often viewed as very speculative. And like Bill Ackman said that the other day, and I think it's just a misconception. He underwrites Netflix margins, which from my perspective, might be very speculative too. But uh, you know, who knows what Netflix is going to be able to charge on a monthly subscription basis? But you kind of know what the break-even is for oil production and for mar- to bring on marginal oil production, and then you kind of know where demand destruction levels are for various oil products. And so maybe you can tell as well or better what the price of oil is going to be five years from now than what Netflix margins or Netflix, uh, you know, uh, price for a subscription. Per month is going to be. And again, not to pick on him or Netflix, I just think there's this like big misconception around commodities where you can't know perfectly, but you can't know a lot of things perfectly. And I think you can know well enough that it's reasonable to assess that. So getting back to the break-even question, so $40 versus $25, right? At 40, you think, hey, the sandwich asset not worth very much, Exxon asset, pretty interesting. We get to 50, you think, okay, Sandridge Asset, well, it's making $10 a barrel. Uh, that's fine. Wow, Exxon, they're making $35 a barrel. Look at those great margins. They're so good. Well, you fast forward to $100 oil and life is very different because whether your break even is, uh, you know, whether your margin is 60 or your margin is 75, that looks pretty similar. And as you go up more, it doesn't even matter, right? It's all kind of in the, all in the rearview mirror. And so as you reset prices higher in a commodity up cycle, as well as reset the floor, the likely price in a down cycle in the future, as you reset that floor higher too, you end up dramatically resetting sort of the likely liquidation value in a mid-cycle liquidation of the assets. And so when I was looking at Sandridge and saying, okay, well, hey, what is this thing worth at $4 natural gas? At the time, gas was $2. Natural gas was $2. And I think people thought it was a little crazy to even think that you might want to underwrite an asset to $4 in MCF. And here we are at almost $9 in MCF within the time frame of that investment thesis. And so again, it like sounds crazy and looks crazy, but it was in writing as a, I mean, again, we didn't even say nine. It was just, hey, at $4 plus, here's how the value inflects. And by the way, we're getting that for free. I think at the time the stock was $1.70 and it was, hey, on a sum of the parts basis, it's worth at least five kind of under those price assumptions. And subsequently prices have rebounded from the mechanism that I just described. And what is the impact that that has on the capital structure? Particularly, what does it allow a company like Sandridge to do to its capital structure uh, that would, would increase the, the equity value well, that ExxonMobil so, couldn't. Yeah, so they went from having net debt, and again, they liquidated assets to be able to cover most of their debt, but they went from essentially net debt and a position where you know below $40 oil, they were not sort of net cash flow positive to a situation where now, you know, again, we wrote up and shared our investment thesis publicly at the end of October of 2020, and the stock was $1.70 at the time. 
Right now, they're generating a little over a dollar per share in free cash flow, keeping production roughly flat per quarter. So the, just the transformation from their balance sheet perspective, like you mentioned earlier, has been phenomenal, right? They went from generating almost no free cash flow, having some debt, looked a little iffy, to now they've generated, I think they have almost $5 of net cash, so net of their short-term liabilities um, and, and net of any debt. And um, they're, they're adding, I mean, at current prices, it's even more ridiculous, right? Like at $9 gas, I mean, it's just astronomical. And I think I put out some sandbag numbers, but you know, maybe it's $2 a share a quarter or something, um, just very, very high from a free cash flow perspective. And so, um, you know, that's obviously transformative. And so if you own a stock at a good price, and you own it at a price where it makes a lot of sense in that current commodity price environment. And frankly, even if prices had fallen a little from where uh, we published that thesis um, in late 2020, or prices had stayed flat, it still could have worked really well. It might not have been a 20 bagger, but it was probably gonna earn a multiple times return. And so getting back to your question about the Buffett uh, comment, I think, I think that's Buffett managing hundreds of billions of dollars in a giant public entity. That's not Buffett running hundreds of millions of dollars as a 40-year-old going and pursuing special situations. There are amazing opportunities right now to be a Buffett-style investor from the Buffett partnerships rather than Berkshire Hathaway, and the returns for the Buffett partnerships were phenomenal relative to the returns for Berkshire Hathaway. And so I think the opportunity, ironically, now we're kind of in an environment that's very similar to the environment that Buffett operated in. And so I think I think it's really a great contrast and it's a great quote to think about because, you know, Buffett today is not Buffett when he put up 50% compounded for 10 years. So that explosive uh, convexity to the upside uh, for Sandridge when the price of oil gas, uh, oil and natural gas goes higher. Uh, there's also you know that in reverse is if, if oil goes back to thirty dollars, ExxonMobil will not do well, but it will do okay. But Sandridge, you know, the value it will it will be losing money. So to uh, to some people that would seem risky. But you and I were speaking yesterday, and you said that in many ways ExxonMobil is more risky than a company like Sandridge. So uh, do you do you disagree that that Sandridge would be a quote risky company? And and why do you say that Exxon could be more risky? So. I think it's I think it's a little complicated, but one one way to think about it is the balance sheet transformation. So I don't know about thirty dollar oil, but let's say oil went back to fifty, right? And again, I think there's a reasonable case that the floors um, in commodity cycles rise in each down cycle, so you you end up with uh, higher lows. And again, like during COVID, oil went below zero for a moment. Um, and floors were reset for a little while, but that was also the world being shut down forcibly by world governments for 18 months. And so uh, if we exclude that as our left tail case, if we just look at normal sort of recessions and depressions, um, there is the history besides COVID was higher lows. And so in a $50 environment, Sandridge is very different today than it was the last time oil was at 50. They have cash instead of debt, they have a cleaned up asset structure. They have a focused uh, deployment plan for capital. And so, sure, their cash flow would be down a lot, but their break evens are probably down a lot too if you reset services costs back down to where they would likely be if oil went back to 50. If you look at Exxon and then you look at their, their relative valuations, so Sandwich is at about two times EBITDA today, plus or minus a little bit. 
Exxon is at, last I checked, five or six times EBITDA today. It might be even a little higher than that. And so as both of them see their cash flows fall from much lower oil to the extent that that happened, there's much more room for Sandridge's current valuation to absorb a fall in cash flow. Whereas at a higher multiple, and we're seeing this with tech stocks now, right? The ones that were at 100 times sales, it was very easy for them to fall to 10 times sales because there's no real valuation support. Having cash flow helps protect your downside. And so even though Exxon might have a lower break even, um, they still have a much higher valuation. And so as the price comes down, there's more room, there's less room for their multiple to expand than Samridge's. And Samridge's multiple could expand significantly and still just get to the multiple that Exxon has. So it's not something I spend a lot of time thinking about in terms of oil getting to 50 and staying there. Given the supply demand mm-hmm. environment, I think the downside case here for oil is maybe $70 plus. And no one knows the future, but again, just looking at the supply demand dynamic now and the potential sort of downside cases that would get to a bear market in oil from the current bull market, um, you know, if you look at 70 or so, maybe even 60, uh, that seems like maybe a more reasonable situation. And if you look at the valuations for Sandbridge and other sort of smaller cap producers that I'm focusing on, many of them are actually not expensive. They're still below the average market multiple on a free cash flow and EBITDA basis relative to that much, much lower oil and natural gas price. And so that's like what gets me so excited about it, as well as why I think it's just categorically untrue among small cap public companies that it's a commodity price bet versus a stock picking security selection sort of bet. Mm-hmm. That is not, it's not only a commodity price bet. Yeah, well, I think I would argue that the the base case is kind of neutral to down for a commodity uh, as an equity investor. And then so you kind of I have my oil hat back there with the 250 WTI, which may happen and may not. Um, and then, you know, I have my stock selection books and, uh, you know, and I don't really mean them. I guess the oil hat's kind of a prop, but the, those these are books yeah, yeah. I, I spend a decent amount of time like thinking about looking at. And, you know, the from a, a security selection perspective, I think it's really important to underwrite to the downside and let the upside take care of itself. And so it's always just underwriting where is the best value, where are the most interesting catalysts, where are the levers available to make money in case I'm wrong on X, Y or Z thing that I think I'm betting on. And so, yeah, I think uh, I think it's more about what the businesses and assets are and then secondarily if there's an upcycle or a further upcycle from a commodity price perspective, that's wonderful too. Um, Josh, now I want to ask you about this tension between the uh, bullish supply factors that we talk about. Uh, oil and gas companies, no matter how much money that they are earning, they are not deploying a lot of it to build new wells, so the for future supply will will be constrained. Versus what we talked about earlier, which is the uh, uh, slowing economy will impact demand. You know, since let's say the summer of 2020, we've had the bullish supply story, but then we've also had an economy coming out of a shutdown. And so demand as well as supply were very, very, very strong. Um, or demand was strong and supply was very weak. And the you know results, you can see it just on chart looking at oil. But what about going forward? Uh, I pretty you know I bet based on what you're saying, you think the supply story will continue to be constrained. But what do you do you have any worries that the slowing economy globally uh, in in Europe, demand destruction in in, in Europe, uh, perhaps in the U.S. as well, uh, shutdowns in China, where you, you know the manufacturing PMIs are officially below 50, meaning that the Chinese economy 
is unofficially kind of in, in recession. Like, uh, how severe of a threat do you think that this slowing economy is to oil demand? And you know, are you are you worried about the impact that will have on on uh, the price of oil and and oil stocks? Uh, in the short run, there are significant economic risks to oil. Over the medium to longer term, I'm not worried at all. And so in the short run, right now, I mean, the Fed has been running, along with world central banks, they've been running a radical experiment in money printing and hyperinflation and trying to rapidly transition from double digit inflation rates that are probably understated when you look at the actual inflation versus the CPIs or equivalents. Um, so they're, they're running this experiment that they can hyperinflate and then uh, mute it down to slow inflation and not hit rapid disinflation or deflation. And it appears that they've already sort of proven themselves wrong and they just don't really know it yet. And so we do have this deflationary pulse, like you're mentioning in China, we may be experiencing that right now in the US. And even though we have this reopening trade going on right now, where goods purchases are falling and services consumption is increasing, um, it appears that the services consumption increase is insufficient relative to the goods consumption decrease. So it does appear that we're in an economic slowdown already and that may get exacerbated to the extent that monetary and fiscal policies continue. Uh, I guess the good news from an economic perspective and for oil is that it is highly unlikely that this continues for any prolonged period of time. That over the next, let's say, six months, and we're already seeing this with energy stimuluses, there's one announced every week, maybe even more at this point in various countries in the world, um, various subsidies and tax cuts. Um, so on the fiscal side, we're already seeing accommodation and we may see substantial additional accommodation. Um, they're talking about forgiving student loans in the US. They're talking about various other things. These are all very fiscally inflationary uh, through, through government spending um, to prop up economies. So that should help a lot because oil is very um, price inelastic from a demand perspective. So it takes a lot to destroy oil demand and oil demand rebounds the fastest or among the fastest of the different consumer categories. And so um, oil demand is very, it's very durable, but also obviously in a sort of depression type scenario um, or in a real economic shock, you can see consumption fall. We are seeing that to some extent, despite this services uh, increase. And so um, I, I think the likely next step after substantial fiscal intervention is monetary intervention, where we see the Fed sort of blink and other central banks blink and start to print money again. And it's just a question to me of, hey, does this take a month or does it take six months? And it helps that there's an election in the US uh, this fall. And so, or yeah, fall, late fall. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see kind of how uh, politicians navigate through this. Uh, I think my base case at this point is substantial additional stimulus and maybe even actual checks getting mailed to people in addition to student loan forgiveness or other sorts of things that are being discussed. And so um, that should be really helpful from a price perspective uh, and a demand perspective for oil short term. Um, medium term, supply is so disappointing relative to demand that even if demand stopped growing for some period or paused growing uh, through China, through other issues, let's say China's reopening takes longer, um, we're still in a situation where the world is materially undersupplied. And even with 
lower than 2019 demand levels for oil worldwide, we're still needing to release almost a million barrels a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, and we're not growing world production much at all, and Russian production seems to be falling off as there's underinvestment in those assets and under maintenance in those assets. So ignoring the um, sanctions, just purely the, the sanctions on capital and talent going into Russia to be able to, um, to sustain production from their fields is sufficient to dramatically reduce oil production there. So the supply situation is so extreme that even in a quite negative demand scenario that I just laid out, you still may end up with very high oil prices. And then when there's stimulus and when there is monetary easing again, we may end up with much higher oil prices. So think about housing. There was a housing bubble in the US through 2006. There was um, monetary easing, or sorry, monetary contraction that helped drive a housing crash in 2007 and 2008. And then there was easing again. And 10 years later, you ended up with housing prices much higher than their prior all-time highs. I think there is a similar dynamic at work right now for oil, where, yeah, you might end up seeing oil go to, let's say, a higher price this summer and then pull back 30% from there. So maybe you get to 130 WTI or 140 WTI at some point this summer, and then maybe it pulls back to 90 or 100 as the economy really suffers and people point to this huge percent drop, again, from elevated levels from here. So it's still not, I think, so scary from an oil perspective. And who knows what happens, but just sort of laying out how I'm thinking about it as a potential uh, scenario. And, and then easing and stimulus and seeing oil potentially go to all-time highs on an inflation-adjusted basis on the back of this sort of failed contraction similar to what we saw in 2008. You, you uh, mentioned Russia. How has Russia's invasion of Ukraine changed the game when it comes to oil and natural gas? You had a huge spike up um, sh shortly after the invasion. Uh, and it, it was quite speculative with implied volatility of, of like the oil contracts themselves, like extremely high. Uh, then they pulled back, but they've just been steadily marching higher. Uh, and in particular, you know, Europe, maybe it can secure its own oil. But when it comes to natural gas, Europe really has been very reliant on Russian natural gas. So if, if Europe were to sanction Russian natural gas or perhaps more likely Russia just cancels all, all, all exports of natural gas to Russia, places like Germany, you know, there's a, there's been a big plan in Germany to secure enough energy, and part of that will be going to nuclear. Part of that is coal. You know, you have people from the Green Party relying on coal. That's something uh, interesting. And then a lot of it is going to come from liquefied natural gas coming on tankers, where it's going to have to be liquefied uh, and then shipped and then regasified once it's on the European continent. To what de degree does that play into your thesis on, on natural gas, um, as well as just the you know extreme price appreciation we've seen? Yeah, so I think I think the expectation was when Russia invaded Ukraine that there were going to be significant sanctions on Russia across the board, and that's where you saw that really elevated price for oil. When it turned out that Europe wasn't serious about that, and the U.S. we weren't serious about it, um, that allowed oil prices to fall back to sort of more economic levels. Uh, so I think the concern was that 
Europe was going to stop buying oil and natural gas and they just didn't sanction it. They, they said they sanctioned it and they're still consuming. I think recently Europe was consuming more Russian gas than they ever had or something along those lines. So um, and Russia is making more money than they ever have through their exports of oil and natural gas. So it's kind of this weird situation. I think even Ukraine is consuming Russian natural gas right now. It's a very weird, they're at war, but they're doing business together. It's very, very strange sort of economic setup that I don't think people contemplated um, at the time of the invasion. So, you know, I, I don't think, I think it really depends on what Europe does. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that they're treating this very seriously. And so it's very interesting to see these people. There's these like photo ops where politicians show up in um, in Kiev and take pictures with a, a Ukrainian uh, president and then disappear. And they're like, try to pretend like they're showing support and they send some money and some weapons and then they buy Russian oil and natural gas. And so, um, you know, I don't think, I think it's important to not, um, to not, say that it's the end of the world when it's not. And the reality is that they're choosing to still consume Russian energy because I, either because they have to or because they don't want to take the economic pain of sourcing their energy from elsewhere. And so I don't think it's as big a deal as people thought it would be because I think the politicians are behaving economically rationally to some extent and not uh, and not consistent with the claims and with the statements that they made sort of at the start of the war. So uh, I think the I think the issue for natural gas is that Russia has been undersupplying Europe and they had been since before they invaded Ukraine. And so there's been these uh, smaller than historic inventories for gas in Europe. And then with high natural gas prices in Europe, and this is something I started talking about last year, you started to see industrial demand shift to the US. And so that's actually soaked up a lot of U.S. inventories for gas. And it's part of why U.S. gas prices are higher. It's not the exports. We already had whatever we had. We were going to build what we built. And then, you know, two years from now, we'll start bringing on additional gas export capacity, liquefied natural gas export capacity. Um, in the meantime, it's just U.S. industry more active here and then consuming more coal and more natural gas domestically rather than exporting it or just sticking it in inventories. But in terms of super spike or anything like that, like unless things really change politically, which it doesn't appear to be the case or likely, I think we've kind of seen that there may be some temporary spikes, but I think the, the risk of a huge spike in European natural gas is somewhat muted given again, just the trajectory of the politics. And then um, the Potential in the U.S. is higher, but there's a cap to some extent where you see what happened in Europe, which was as prices get to a certain level, industrial activities just slow down. And so we're not quite at that level yet at close to $9 in MCF. But as we get closer to $15 or $20, there's definite demand destruction. And so um, you know, hopefully it'll be industrial demand destruction and not people unable to cool or heat their homes and ending up freezing or, or you know, having heat exhaustion. What about the opposite risk that Putin cuts Europe off? Uh, to, to me, that seems more likely than, than Europe sanctioning uh, Putin. And then in that case, let's take the, what is it, the, the uh, Dutch natural gas price, TTF. That spread between where the, the Dutch, uh, natural gas is trading uh, um, in the Netherlands and where it's trading in the U.S., you know, eight, or, eight or nine dollars. Um, that, that must be pretty significant, right? Yeah. So I don't think that's so likely. Um, 
I mean, Russia, so again, like I'm more of a expert in oil and gas supply and demand and on specific uh, oil and gas companies and less on geopolitics, but it doesn't, it just, they haven't done it so far. And I've been reading reports on the war in Ukraine. Uh, it's just been really interesting to see what the news headlines are and then what other sort of primary source. It reminds me of Pantheon a little bit, right? You have like the Twitter posts and the like stock promoters. And then you have like, you know, uh, you talk to a geologist <laughs> or like, a, you know, an operator of another field in the same area. And, you know, it's not not always like sometimes the Twitter guy's right and sometimes the headline's right and the you know expert's wrong. Uh, but most, most often not always. it's the other way around. And so um, the, the most recent thing I saw, apparently Ukraine is losing in the Donbass and maybe uh, withdrawing significantly. And so there's actually significant uh, forward movement by the Russian army in Ukraine. It appears that there, despite many news media reports to the contrary, uh, there was, I think, a Washington Post article recently where they essentially retracted a bunch of their reporting and said, oh, Ukraine's actually losing this at least in, in the Donbass, and I'm, I might be mispronouncing that, I apologize. But um, so it's just really interesting. And that retraction is part of why I'm happy to say that what I've been doing, which is just trying to actually understand what's going on and reading various sources and trying to stay open-minded, especially as headlines just haven't made a lot of sense. I think the more likely left tail risk here from an oil and gas price perspective is that Russia wins and they get what they want and the war is over. And then there's a move towards lower sanctions over time. And I think that would be good for the world. And that would be negative from a supply perspective. It would increase the supply of oil and natural gas from Russia, potentially. Um, the, the, the one nice mitigating factor on that is I think Russia really likes having $115 WTI oil, 118 or whatever Brent. And so even if they accomplished peace, they might not. They might just magically have operating issues in their oil and gas fields um, that restrict supply. And again, they're not dumb, right? Uh, I mean, it, it was probably dumb and evil to invade Ukraine, but they're not dumb economically, apparently, in terms of how they navigated all this. And so... Um, you know, I don't think it's a super likely left tail, but but as I see it, the most likely left tail there is just that peace breaks out, which, again, would be wonderful from a world perspective. It would just be negative for oil and gas prices. Josh, even with natural gas still flowing into Europe, there there is a energy crisis within Europe. I mean, there is one globally, but specifically within Europe because it doesn't produce that much, uh, leading some countries uh Portugal, the UK to, to impose price caps. And actually just recently, I think perhaps to, um, today, uh, Britain announced a, a 25% tax on oil and gas's producers' profits, uh, or I guess it was yesterday, alongside a 15 billion dollar, a 15 billion pound package of support to meet energy bills. So uh, what do you make of that? Uh, the, what is the impact of, the, of that tax on the price of, of oil and, and gas? Uh, I mean, it's going to send prices higher. And so the risk to me is I end up owning assets or investments in companies that are active in places that put in these sorts of taxes. The nice thing is that it's not a surprise that shortly after the UK heavily taxed one of the potential fields that could drive additional production, the North Sea, um, oil prices are higher. And so, you know, politicians are sometimes slow and, um, you know, sometimes impose policies that are contrary to what you'd expect. But one of the things that's been interesting is there haven't really been too many policies, at least in the U.S., that have been imposed 
that had immediate negative price impacts on oil. Like the, the policies always were designed, at least in the very short term, to make oil go down, not up. So as policymakers in the US or Canada or elsewhere look at what happened immediately after the UK imposed these windfall taxes, which is that oil's up a few dollars a barrel, um, that that's a bad outcome from their perspective. And that's been something where people have asked me a lot about an oil export ban out of the US. There are all kinds of logistical and trade alliance issues and other stuff, but there's also just that there haven't so far, it doesn't mean it won't happen, but it does seem that there is this pattern, which is that the policies generally um, also going back to Trump and, and, you know, I mean, for a number of years now, policies have generally been oriented towards in the very short term, lowering the price at the pump and lowering the price of oil, not raising it. So um, I think if you just look at there's there there are a lot of things that are very unpredictable, but if you look at something where a hundred percent of very odd, unpredictable things all lean one direction, um, I think it's reasonable to bet that not in all cases, but in many cases, that that will continue. And so, I, I just don't think I don't think it's that likely that there's a windfall tax imposed in the U.S. or Canada. Again, mostly just because I think the expectation would be it would send prices higher, not lower. So I, th- I think it can be helpful for viewers to hear your your framework for why what attracts you to the companies that you invest in. But it can also be fun to talk about the companies that you don't like. So let's say, Josh, instead of trying to make as much money as possible in oil and gas, you're trying to make as as little money as possible in oil and gas. You may still make money because because oil and gas you know do well, but. I'm specifically thinking of a quote you said yesterday. You said, uh, Total and Shell are competing to see who can burn more capital. So what do you think is wrong with what Total and Shell are doing and ExxonMobil and Chevron? Why don't you like the majors and why do you think that they are burning capital, as you say? So so I I do like some majors more than others, and I think the market does too at this point. I think I think there's a big problem with having oil majors and gas majors uh, attempt to uh, deploy capital into alternative energy. And the push has been by their activist shareholders, which has been very weird. Uh, if you own a BlackRock ETF or a Vanguard ETF, they're voting for you to for these companies to divest. So they're getting you worse returns with You've apparently given them your consent without them really telling you to vote to push these sorts of policies. So it's like a very weird governance moment. It'll be interesting in terms of liability to see what happens as this is more and more measurable, as there are different companies that choose different paths. Um, And I think it's like why engine number one and the activism at Exxon was so important, because I think they really didn't want there to be a case of a company that wasn't doing what they were pushing everyone else to do because Exxon was doing so much better as a stock. Uh, Exxon and Chevron were way outperforming because they were underinvesting in ESG. And so um, and so they really needed to push hard and to change the board to try to promote malinvestment. So that way there wouldn't be a good case um, as a, or a contra uh, to the malinvestment that's being done across the industry. But when you look at these companies and you look at their histories of building giant organizations that are very capable of developing large offshore oil and gas projects. And you try applying them, those are projects that typically have large operating margins that have big margins of safety across a number of different factors. And you try applying those sorts of businesses to a different 
industry, right, to power generation, um, which is not something that they've typically historically done, and to different sort of uh, success criteria and categories, and then have them do it not based on economics, because there's there's nothing to say that today is the right moment or three years ago or whatever thing is the right moment to be initiating a giant offshore wind project. Um, and then you look at the competition where there might have been no competition on these things 10 years ago, and now you have all of these majors all bidding against each other for the rights to be able to go develop X, Y, or Z alternative energy project. You end up in a situation where it's a race to the bottom. It's similar to the shale industry that I was critiquing and that sort of private equity, 25 million funds to $5 billion funds and going from it being off the run to being the consensus where they're all bidding against each other and bidding away returns. Um, I think the same thing has kind of happened with oil majors and alternative energy. I mean, there's other sorts of categories of investments that I've been avoiding, but um, definitely if a company that has expertise in X goes and does Y aggressively without, with like acknowledged very low return targets, uh, I mean, I don't know why I'd want my money in that. And I don't like to invest in anything professionally that I wouldn't want my money in. Mm. Well, just to play devil's advocate, what about, you know, if, if ExxonMobil is 100%, if it's, if it's a wind company, it can do business with any banking company. It can get banks. It can get equity financing. Whereas the the sort of the sandwiches of the world, they increasingly will have a, uh, to pay a very high cost of capital. Banks won't do business with them. They can't get the necessary financing to to build a well. And uh, you know, green energy is the future. So what do you say to that? So the good news is that because these oil majors are uh, piling up their shareholders' money and lighting it on fire. Um, because they're doing that instead of going and drilling more offshore oil and gas wells, which is what they're good at and frankly what the world needs, um, because they're doing that, the price for oil and for natural gas is a lot higher than it would be if they were deploying capital how they should be. So the good news for the smaller producers that are choosing to not deviate from their stated business strategy and the thing that allowed them to get capitalized in the first place is that they're able to make more money. And so when I first started getting uh, into oil and gas investing in 2007 uh, for this uh, big family office I worked for, um, they, I, I ran into someone who I was telling them about an oil company I was looking at and they told me, no, Josh, you're wrong. Don't invest in that. Um, oil companies don't need the bank. I was telling them about how they were financed. That, no, real oil company doesn't need the bank. A real oil company is the bank. And so... You know, if you're if you're Sandridge and you have like a twenty four dollars share price and five dollars of cash per share, and you're making one or two dollars per share per quarter and free cash, I mean, you're the bank, right? You got all the cash that you need. So if X, Y, or Z bank doesn't want to do business with you, no problem, right? If every shareholder decided they wanted to go sell their Sandbridge stock, congratulations, they could just buy back shares, you know, maybe at a lower price, but they could cut their share count really significantly, really rapidly. So if you make a lot of money, it protects you from a lot of different things, including uh, challenges with financing and challenges with popularity. And so that's less of an option for the oil majors. And again, like I... I understand the dilemma for like a Mike Worth at, at Chevron, and I have a lot of respect for him. Um, he has to do it because his shareholders are these ETFs that are, you know, voting shares that re they really shouldn't be, but they are. And so, like, 
you have to deal with the world how it is, not how it should be. And so in order to maintain his job, he's doing what he has to do. And Chevron and Exxon are doing the minimal amount relative to some of their, their peers in terms of this malinvestment, but they are doing it. And so, um, you know, I get it and I understand it and I respect it because that's really his job in life is to keep his job and then try to minimize shareholder value destruction. Um, I just don't have to enter into that game. I can just take my money and go invest in something where there isn't that sort of sort of Faustian bargain being made. And when they so when when the majors companies when they divest, so they sell oil and gas projects, who are they selling to? Uh, it varies. So um, I'm invested in some companies that have bought projects from larger producers. Um, That's what I was getting at. <laughs> some of the fundings I participated in have been to do those sorts of acquisitions. And in many cases, these assets are derided as low quality. They're derided as high operating cost. And again, it's like, okay, so what's the what's the break even? Is it $30 a barrel? Is it $40 a barrel? Is it 50? I mean, these were things that sounded really terrible when oil was at 30 and they sound amazing and like things that you get paid back for in less than a year at $100 plus oil. And so, um, yeah, they're selling to other typically independent producers or private companies that are buying their assets to, to manage them. And I think I think people have kind of caught on to that. So the push to divest is dying down a bit, um, but the push to uh, cut new investment is pretty strong. And I think the, the idea now is to try to have them actually hold the assets so they don't get further developed and to reduce the productive life of the assets by forcing capital to get spent on alternatives rather than being spent on redevelopment or sufficient continued maintenance to be able to maintain production from these assets. Yeah, so, so I'm really enjoying this uh, talking about the micro. I feel like we definitely could talk about the macro oil story, but I've done interviews like that on this podcast. You've done interviews before. So I, you know, I, want, I want us to give the audience something that they, you know, I aspire to give some, something to the audience that they can't get anywhere else. So let's continue in the vein of what are the companies that you don't you, you don't invest in and why. In particular, uh, you said something like everyone's into Pantheon right now, but uh, you, you have your, your, your concerns about that. And then also the, one of the companies that Warren Buffett invested in, Occidental Petroleum. Uh, what do you think about that? Okay. So, so um, I generally don't invest that much in exploration companies. And I know I said that I think the industry needs to do it, but that doesn't mean that I need to do it. And um, I think exploration is very hard. And where I've seen exploration companies be successful, there's generally been a whole sort of like crowd of engineers and geologists and other people I'll run into here in Houston who are excited about the thing or speculating on it. They know it's risky, but they're gambling on it with their money because, you know, on a risk adjusted basis, they think it's very promising. And there are, I won't name them, but there are a couple of companies like that right now where I know a number of sophisticated investors who have industry expertise who understand that they, their money could go to zero, but are speculating on these different exploration prospects through public stocks right now. Um, I don't know anyone like that who owns Pantheon. And I did look at it a little bit because there was a, a big push by a number of different generalist investors and some sort of like well-known uh, 
well-known people that have done well on other sort of speculative investments that have been pushing Pantheon from a much lower share price. So they've been right in terms of the stock price going up. Um, and so I asked around a little bit and the industry people I talked to that either know something about that particular asset or are active in that area, um, it came back with a substantially negative uh, diligence feedback. And then when I looked at the company itself, uh, they've had other prospects that they've heavily promoted that actually fit a sort of similar pattern. And there was historically a similar share price pattern and a similar sort of disappointment period after those were unsuccessful. So it doesn't mean it won't work. It just seems so generally for me to want to do it, I would have had to done those industry uh, diligence checks and for them to have come back really positive. So again, it doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means that that's negative. That means it's less likely to happen. And then um, you know, the speculative interest, because again, geologists love finding out more about geology. And so there's this tendency for oil companies run by geologists to drill more wells. And with their personal money among the geologists I know, many like to speculate on oil exploration. And if I can't find any that like it and I find a number that don't like it, um, to me, that tells me kind of what I need to know, right? It's like going to Vegas and you meet a bunch of gamblers and they don't like that one casino. You know, you're like, don't go to that casino. Uh, and you don't yeah. need to know too much of the specifics. And again, I'm not a geologist. I just, you know, and I looked at it a little bit and I think I kind of understand why they don't like it, but I don't have to, right? Like ultimately it's about having the network, being able to know what you don't know and then be able to um, find the people that can give you the odds in terms of, you know, you just stay away from that casino. So I think that's a similar effect. And again, it's not a reflection of the people. It's not a reflection of the asset. It may work. The people may be good. Um, it just, I have a process and that process indicates that I would want to stay away. On the Oxy side, it's interesting. Oxy is basically the biggest levered bet on oil prices in the public market. Um, they have a horrible reputation here in Houston uh, in terms of the way that they treat their people. And you meet many, many talented people who are ex-Oxy employees. And you don't meet many who are active Oxy employees. And when you meet former Oxy employees, they tell you about what they were doing and, and help you understand kind of what's going on that's not so great. And so operationally, they're actually like, their, their drilling teams are quite good. And so they have like really kind of specific niches within their business that, that work quite well. But in aggregate, the business itself seems, again, like just knowing a lot of people that are there and were there and, and having some more color on the business, um, it's not it's not a well managed machine. It's not you know I, I know how other companies of a similar size as well as smaller size are run, and it's just it's not the sort of thing that when you know it you like want to be betting on that machine accomplishing sort of you know if it's making widgets, I, it's not the kind of thing I I wouldn't bet on high quality widgets emerging from that sort of setup. So that's like a, a sort of non financial aspect. Um, looking mm -hmm. at divestitures and acquisitions that they've done, they did a very poorly timed acquisition at a very high price where they outbid a better capitalized competitor in a marketed process where there were huge change of control payments uh, to the seller. It was just a very weird sort of many red flag negative event. And then when was you- Was that Anadarko? That was, yeah. And when you look yeah, yeah. at- And Warren Buffett uh, lent money to Occidental to do that, right? 
He did. Yeah. But again, like that was not a great deal for Oxy. That was a very expensive. They were an investment grade company and they went and issued almost 10 percent interest uh, paper. And that was, I mean, <laughs> that's not good. Uh, and if you have to do that, that's an indicator. If you can is issue 2% interest bonds and you issue a 10% or 8% or whatever pref, uh, you know, that's like <laughs> a pretty good sign that the market's telling you you shouldn't be doing what you're doing. Um, but then there... There were other aspects too. So you look at divestitures Oxy made during the downturn. Um, you look at how it's navigated its properties. And it's just consistent with my observation of their organization and management approach. And, you know, it's not to say, so obviously the stock has done well as oil's done well, but there have been other things to own where the thing itself is sort of better organized and more likely to generate positive returns sort of intrinsically over time, not just as a oil price bet. And so, um, you know, it's something that I feel fine not owning. I kind of understand why people who run large funds own it. And I really, I, I struggle with why individual investors, small investors own it. I just can't, like there are so many different companies that have similar oil upside, but are at, let's say a third of the valuation. Um, it's a very popular stock among retail investors, and it's just very strange. I get I get Berkshire owning it, right? They want to have a levered bet. It's a way to mitigate some of their inflation uh, risk to the downside on a number of their different businesses. It makes sense, right? I don't question why Buffett's buying it. Frankly, they could buy the whole thing, and it might not be such a bad idea for Berkshire, and they have to operate at that scale. I don't, and many others don't, and I just I just don't. It doesn't. It doesn't resonate for me. It doesn't. And then valuation wise, um, you know, yeah, they have leverage to high oil prices. Um, and yeah, they are taking advantage of these good cash flows they're generating to pay off debt. And so that does improve their sort of overall business profile. But it just when you look at the assets they got rid of that were fantastic at ultra low prices um, and you look at their development um the remaining sort of development window that they have in sort of their core areas, it's just it's really hard to get excited about. And so you take the culture, which is not so great and is sort of well known here in Houston is not so great. And you take the assets and they're not so great. And then the valuation and it's like fine again at high oil prices relative to other big oil companies. I just don't need to own big oil companies and it's not competitive with valuations of medium-sized or smaller oil companies. You take it all together, and so I don't really feel the need to own it. Again, not recommending anything on either of those right. companies, just you know, those are um, how I approach them. And, and I, think, I think there's a big benefit to being able to be here in Houston to get to meet a lot of these people. And occasionally you miss something because of uh, people's biased views or whatever, but it also, I think, in aggregate helps uh, keep me out of trouble on stuff like that. For sure. Well, ho hopefully you, uh, you know, our audience doesn't get into trouble as well. Uh, the, the final uh, uh, oil and gas asset, which you is not your favorite, are the royalty companies. Let's in particular talk about the Texas Pacific Land Trust, a huge royalty company that, you know, Josh, it's one of the best performing stocks of all time. Uh, so you better have a good case for telling tell me why it's not why it's not your favorite. So I don't dislike royalties intrinsically. I think obviously royalties are one of the highest quality 
cash flow stream as you can own because they typically have some of the lowest operating costs and the lowest break even. So there's there's more certainty on the cash flow. And so that does deserve a premium valuation. So all of that is is true and reasonable. Um, when I look at TPL versus many of its peers, the valuation stands out. Uh, it is very highly valued versus peers. And then when I look at the assets and I look at the potential future cash flow from those assets versus their peers, it's also very highly valued. And then when I look at the history and it's like, okay, so how did that happen, right? How did you get from a likely undervalued situation to a situation where on a relative basis, this particular set of royalty cash flow plus land that they're divesting um, is at this sort of highly elevated valuation. When I look at it, I see there's a very large holder that's accumulated a large position in the business over time. And then, uh, you know, that, that can have an effect in terms of valuation. And then there had been significant buybacks, which I generally like, but when a company is trading at a large premium to very similar peers, I question repurchasing shares at two or three times the cash flow multiple versus just using that cash to buy shares of peers at half or a third of that cash flow multiple, or in some cases, even more extreme of a valuation disconnect than that, and potentially using, if there was sufficient cash, buying the entirety of peers at half or whatever the multiple. And so it just, the so I question the capital allocation substantially, and then the valuation just doesn't make a lot of sense. And I do have the expertise to evaluate the assets and on closer evaluation, um, it does not appear that they are sufficiently differentiated from their peers to merit the uh, extremely elevated multiple versus, versus, again, their peers. So this is less of an intrinsic value. I think there's a case for it on an intrinsic value basis, but that case, that same case could get made for many peers way more compellingly. If you think a 2% yield or whatever is good, well, 6% or 7% yield is great. <laughs> like if it's from the same sources and you have maybe even more running room from some of these other ones. And I have very limited exposure to the overall space because operating assets rather than royalties have more price upside. And in the environment that I see likely over the next number of years, uh, the downside protection associated with royalties is good, but it's insufficient to compensate for the much lower value, the much lower cash flows and the much higher valuations than are available in upstream producers. So over the conceivable set, from when I look at it on a probabilistic basis, it seems very likely that producers will do better enough by this high price environment that they're worth owning, even though they're a little less safe, uh, because I can own them at two times cash flow instead of owning a royalty company at 15 or 20 times cash flow. Like I get more than paid for that lower quality cash flow stream by that radically lower valuation multiple. All right. Well, Josh, uh, my final question for you is to propose, I guess, what would sort of be the ultimate risk and is what a lot of people perceive as the reason why they don't invest in oil and gas in that there's something like, uh, you know, a so-called carbon bubble that 
there's only there's only so many you know gigatons of CO2 that the the globe the humanity can emit before it, it reaches a certain level of uh, to, to, uh, where it will be we will the, the Earth will warm by a, a degree and a half or more or in some cases two degrees and you know we can only burn essentially ten more years so when you read Exxon Mobil's balance sheet and it says I don't know the number I'm just going to make it up uh, you know two hundred billion dollars worth of assets in property plant and equipment a lot of that is uh, is unburnable carbon. It's, it's carbon that you know, cannot be burned, uh, either because there's a social, a social movement that's just so all-encompassing, or it's, it's outright banned. And therefore, you know, it, it's, uh, it, it'll be, in, in effect, an insolvent company because it has all these liabilities, but uh, it, uh, it has to pay it, you know, it, 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 its assets. It won't be able to realize the value on those assets. Moreover, um, the the AROs they will they will have to be brought forward into the future. So it's interesting. A company like Sandrid actually would perhaps be less vulnerable to that than a, a company like Exxon Mobil or the giants that just have these huge huge amounts of um, of of like of property, plant, and equipment. But yeah, what what do you make of that as as a threat to the oil and gas sector as a whole? Yeah, so owning companies at two times cash flow uh, makes that much less of a concern to me and for my portfolio. Um, but I think I think it's interesting because the people that came up with that um, have bought uh, beachfront homes recently that they fly to in their private jets uh, while they consume various kinds of carbon emitting hydrocarbons. Uh, at way above the average rate for uh, humanity and for people in their countries, and so I think um, I think it's an interesting concept. And when those people sell their beachfront homes because they're worried about uh, rising waters, um, and when they stop using their private jets because they're worried about some sort of carbon ceiling actually happening, um, you know, I think I'll, I'll take that a little more seriously. But in the meantime, I think. Um, you know, I think the messenger often signals the message. And in this case, the messengers are signaling that there's money to be made in delivering that message, but they are not through their actions signaling that as a real risk. So again, it's like, you know, you can say, hey, this guy who's been right on four stocks likes Pantheon, therefore I should buy Pantheon. Okay, cool. Or you can like go meet the geologists that you know who like to speculate on oil and gas stocks where there's exploration and none of them own Pantheon. So, you know, you can uh, filter a little. And so um, I think with filtering a little for this, uh, that doesn't really hold up, I think, as such a big risk. And then particularly of the companies that I own, where I own them at very, very low cash flow multiples, at very high free cash flow yields, um, it just doesn't seem it doesn't seem like that big a deal. And I guess the one other aspect to that is if you look at the countries that have gone furthest along that sort of spectrum and they're European countries and you look at what they were trying to do and then what they're doing right now, in many cases, they're turning on coal power plants, which are sort of the most emitting from a carbon perspective. And so, you know, that I think is a signal of the direction. I think I heard someone say that it's hard to uh, know when we're going to have peak oil if we haven't even peaked coal. And so um, I, let's like let's look at coal and let's see when coal consumption peaks and starts to fall off. And maybe that'll be an indicator of when oil might start. And in the meantime, my company's at two times cash flow. 
um, should do just fine. And if anything, if you look at, you know, Kathy Wood and others were out with this sort of whale oil analogy. If you look at what happened with whale oil prices, uh, whale oil was quite richly priced uh, as it phased out. And so in a phase out sort of scenario, were that to happen if it were not instantaneous, um, you know, maybe there are significant profits in the business also. So I guess we'll see, but so far, uh, as I see various people buying uh, beachfront property on islands that have very low elevations or, you know, uh, various places that are just very subject to the risks that they are making lots of money warning others about while flying to those conferences on private jets, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just not treat that quite as seriously as a risk and address other real risks that are more tangible and uh, more likely. Josh, uh, when do you think the world, obviously we no one, no, no, it's possible, no, when do you think the world will hit peak oil demand? I think you, you mentioned an investor who speculated that we had already reached it. Uh, I think that's been proven to not be accurate. But when do you think that the, the world will reach peak oil demand? I don't know. I mean, I think it's a really good question. It does appear that so far we've been growing oil demand by about 1% per year on a global basis. And that seems to be one of those almost immutable sort of trajectories. And it seems that when you get to a uh, mature economy, you sort of uh, flatline to some extent your oil demand. But in inflecting economies, which fortunately India is seeing right now and certain other emerging markets have been seeing, uh, you, you see energy consumption rise a lot, including oil consumption. And so I think, I think we could see oil demand much higher than current levels. And if it doesn't get there, it might be because of scarcity of supply. And that might just mean much, much higher prices. And the reality is that if you're a farmer in India and you can go buy a scooter or some other sort of low gas consuming uh, internal combustion engine vehicle to bring your product to market yourself, your returns on that might be ultra high and it might not matter so much if you're buying a $500 scooter or whatever. Um, if your gasoline is $5 a gallon or $20 a gallon, the, the return on use of it might be so high that you don't necessarily care. And when you extrapolate that out onto what is it, 1.2, 1.4 billion people of whom a very small percentage currently use any gasoline or any diesel, um, you know, there's just we saw this in China already and in China, they still use a fraction per uh, person of the oil that we use in America and Europe and elsewhere. And so, you know, as we see these inflections, there's really a lot of room up in demand. And then it's just a question of how much of that gets met through actual supply, how much of that gets priced out through higher prices. And then, you know, there are alternatives and uh, with lithium prices doing what they've done and various other uh, inputs for batteries and other costs, um, you know, electric vehicles and, and the like are actually less attractive substitutes than just using internal combustion engines and paying even at $200 oil relative to current lithium prices and cobalt and other prices. Uh, it's still actually more cost competitive. So, um, you know, I think uh, I think the demand is pretty strong from emerging markets and it should hopefully continue because that's indicative of improving quality of life for hundreds of millions or billions of people. And really, if we're caring about the world and caring about people, that's where the greatest good can get done is through those people getting access to basic health care and getting access to basic transportation that we just treat as a given. 
Final question for you, Josh, concerns hedging. It's a safety practice risk that a lot of co commodity companies do sell out the forward contract. So if the price goes down, they, they don't go broke. It makes sense. But you've seen a lot of companies, not just in oil and gas, but in mining, in coal as well, get really uh, impaired by by hedging because the volatility that they have to the contracts they enter with the bank they get blown out. You know, for example, uh, Peabody Energy, they the price of coal has doubled over the past year. You would think they'd have a good first quarter, but they actually lost hundreds of billions of dollars via their their hedge. So, uh, you know, I know there's a company you invest, I believe, in Canada uh, that does not hedge, and that is particularly why you like it. So, you know, how severe of a risk or, or do you think that uh, hedging is to oil and gas, and why do you like a company that specifically does not hedge? So I own companies that have uh, oil or gas price hedges, and I own ones that don't. And obviously, the ones that don't have hedges uh, do better in a price environment where the price is rising or has risen a lot relative to prior periods. And so it's a little easier to own those companies in that sort of rising price environment, but it's also more risky. And so. I've needed to be very careful to own ones that are transforming their businesses, like we described with Sandridge, where you know Sandridge doesn't have hedges either. They really transform sort of what their break-even costs look like. They transform their balance sheet, and so uh, I think I think there is some safety in that sort of operational and sort of cost structure transformation um, that provides some of the downside protection that other companies have from hedges. Um, I just treat the hedges as liabilities like they are in the current price environment and as a potential asset if prices were to fall materially from here. And so you know, I think it's just dependent on the company and on the situation specifically. I, again, I, I, when, when we talked about what bison is and like how we do it, one, one reason we've been able to survive since we launched in 2015 despite the first five plus years being an oil and gas bear market was by taking a special situations approach and owning individual securities with individual theses, not just having you know real estate or some other stuff that the market wasn't giving credit to, but having a number of different aspects that were different in each of the different investments that helped provide a margin of safety and help provide different sort of um, valuation unlock potential on the upside, multiple different catalysts. And so, um, you know, I think uh, there isn't the thing that's in common maybe among our holdings is the very low valuations. But, uh, you know, we're, we're exposed to sort of different um, different situations. And you know, some of the shares we've been buying recently have material hedging in place. And again, we just treat it as a liability, understand what the situation is, understand their strategy and as those hedges unwind or as the companies grow additional production um, or as they lock in additional production as they hedge it, but at much higher price levels, there's room for them to generate substantial cash flow. And so I think it's uh, it's not anything at a price, but it's many things at the right price as a sort of approach. Very interesting. Well, Josh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, people can follow you on Twitter at Josh underscore Young underscore one. Um, you were the uh, chief investment officer of Bison Interest. Thanks so much. Great. Thanks a lot.